Okay, welcome everybody. Before we get going, I just want to do a quick disclaimer here, just consider the standard disclaimer rate, not financial advice. Neither myself nor my guests are your financial advisors. This is for entertainment purposes only. For full disclaimer, please check YouTube notes below. With that out of the way though, I have a special guest here today, Peter Bookvar. Peter is the Chief Investment Officer, pardon me, Peter is the Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Financial Group, an $8 billion wealth management firm. Prior to Bleakley, Peter spent multiple decades working within various funds and firms and possesses a lifetime of relevant experience and expertise. He is a regular contributor to CNBC and other news outlets and is the editor and founder of The Book Report. Peter, it's nice to meet you here today and thank you for your time and thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Perfect. Well, we'll just dive right into it here, right? I want to kind of pick your brain, you know, a little bit of things from soup to nuts here, I suppose. I want to talk about what Bleakly offers and what, what precisely Bleakly is and maybe the philosophy behind what your, invest, your investments there, but maybe also your attitude and approach to commodities in today's market. And then also maybe just, I think what I want to focus on ultimately is maybe some advice that you might offer to my listeners and to the retail sector in general. But maybe just to start out, right, just nowhere else to start but the beginning, why don't you actually, yeah, discuss Bleakly and yourself a bit, I suppose, right, a brief history, both of yourself and how you came to be at Bleakly today. Uh, Bleakly uh, is a wealth management firm. We have about 60 different financial advisors uh, and managing, uh, actually about $9 billion now, and mostly for, you know, uh, individuals of, of all um, income levels and, and other institutions. And uh, as the CIO, uh, I manage two particular strategies, one a global macro strategy and another one an income-focused strategy. And uh, just trying to help clients with their financial lives and maneuvering through uh, the investing landscape. Hmm. Prior, so prior, oh, should I get into? Prior to coming here, uh, I was the uh, chief market analyst with the Lindsay Group, which was which is still run by Larry Lindsay, uh, former Federal Reserve Governor and uh, White House Economic Advisor. And prior to that, I've been mostly on the sell side, but also on the buy side at hedge fund and uh, managing money throughout. And uh, brings me to where I am today in this business for about 30 years. Perfect. Well, yeah, thank you. And again, appreciate your time for, for taking it to be with me here today. So why don't you, I mean, maybe a question I have, and this is going to be fairly general, right? But uh, just imagine, I'm sure you have different portfolios and strategies, but could you maybe discuss what is your, maybe an overarching philosophy or strategy that, that you operate by through your work with Bleakly? Well, um, there's not necessarily there are multiple strategies, but the, the one at least for my two portfolios is, and it's just my own personal style of investing. Uh, but we marry that with other styles uh, as well. But mine is is through a, a value lens when looking at the markets. Uh, but you know when it comes to total construction of, of a client portfolio, you know, we definitely have growthy parts of the portfolio and value parts of the portfolio. And uh, my strategy sort of fit the value part, but also. Uh, I had a, a multi-asset and global macro strategy in the sense of uh, I'm very geographically agnostic when it comes to finding investment ideas. And uh, whether it's a stock, a bond, or a currency, or a commodity, uh, to me, where there's opportunity, uh, I can go there. Well, if you don't mind, I may, maybe I'll just follow that garden path for a moment here. You, you discuss 
you know, agnostically geographic. I mean, could you discuss maybe? I mean, obviously there are risks associated with with jurist, you know, not with ad, adventuring outside of tier one jurisdictions, shall we, shall we call them? I mean, are, are you true agnostic? Are there things that you concern yourself with, or how do you? I guess how do you protect yourself against the risks that come requisite with geographical risk? Well, I I'm not investing. Luckily, I wasn't investing in Russia. Uh, or, um, you know, not investing in, I guess, frontier emerging markets, you can call it. Uh, so when looking overseas, it's it's Europe, it's countries in Asia or even Latin America. So while there are developing, quote unquote, third world countries there, uh, I'm not really necessarily going below that. Now, of course, there are uh, political uh, challenges that you need to deal with. And even if you're investing in Asia, you have to see how uh, the, the, the geopolitical relationship plays out between the U.S. and China and China and the rest of the world, depending on how they manage Taiwan. So there's always political risks that you need to focus on. But, you know, there are even political risks in the U.S. Uh, when you have two different parties looking at the world in two different ways and how they want to manage policy. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fair statement. I think that obviously sometimes it's a matter of the devil. You know, for a lot of people that they would pref they prefer the the known risks of a North American jurisdiction. As a Canadian, as I meant, include myself there, right? That the known struggles with permitting, shall we say, from a commodity perspective, versus the unknowns, as you say, of the frontier world, right? Um, so I guess I have two maybe two questions here. Maybe trying to 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 keep an angle towards this kind of micro cap resource discussion that I that I'm coming from. Um, maybe first of all. Could you just discuss, I mean, so again, I understand that you have multiple portfolios, so it's, it's difficult to say there's one size fits all. But, you know, when we talked briefly on the phone prior to this, you know, you mentioned that you are long commodities, and we'll get into that. But, I mean, in terms of portfolio composition, can you discuss what ratio or percentage commodities or exposure to commodities work for you in, in terms of Bleakly? Well, it, it, it depends on the opportunity set. Uh, there, there are going to be times when I own no commodities. Uh, you know, the one thing about that sector is it's obviously very uh, sort of streaky in the sense of being highly cyclical and it has its bull markets and it has its pronounced bear markets and bull markets last a while, bear markets last a while. Uh, you can go through um, basically the desert of uh, owning commodities in bear markets that uh, you never think you're going to ever sip a glass of water again. Uh, so when, when, it, when it's time to be in commodities... You know, it's also a balance, too, because you don't want to be too overweight just because, again, the cyclicality uh, of, of, of that sector. I don't think there's necessarily one sort of rule of thumb when it comes to exposure. Uh, I guess you can use maybe a benchmark of, of, of commodity uh, or commodity stock exposure within the S&P. You take energy, for example, and use that as a weight. But uh, I, I just feel like uh, the way that we do it is something that, that clients are comfortable with. Uh, without having some sort of an exact science behind what the right ratio should be. Mm. Oh, fair point. And if, you know, I, I ask that because a a strong, I I I I I long for a world where there's a, a more educated retail investor in this sector. Right? I mean, it, as you said, it's a very dangerous, a very volatile sector, and and you have to be nimble, right? And so I think that kind of when you when you invest in the sector, eyes wide open, knowing what you're getting yourself into goes a long way towards protect, protecting yourself from any of those volatile downsides. Um, I do have and also, you know, we, we talk homogeneously about commodities, but, you know, all of them have their own different characteristics that you have to be really aware of. And parts of the commodity industry are, are really tough. And, you know, metals and mining, for example, is a really crappy business. 
uh, I mean, the, 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 there, I don't know if there's any industry that's destroyed more capital than, you know, the, the, the metals and mining sector. So you got to be really, really careful, really patient and uh, just be eyes wide open with respect to the risks. Mm -hmm. And I should be careful too. I mean, when I say commodities, I, I will not be able to discuss cotton with you in a meaningful fashion or, or corn or something right there. I, I definitely come at this from a, from a, a metals and resources and mineral sector for sure. Um, I can't help but ask you this. This is a classic kind of, when you, when you troll the, the retail boards, this is a classic question around when you get funds like bleakly, right. And, and knowing that maybe you are philosophically aligned with, with commodities in this, in this stage or this wave stage in the second, pardon me, stage in the market, uh, there's always discussions about minimums, right? When a company's too small or too illiquid for for larger funds to pay attention to, and so I guess I'll just take the opportunity to ask you right now. I mean, are there minimums that you that you you know wait for as a as a as a as a portfolio as a fund manager to that companies have to achieve before you invest it? I'm talking market cap or liquidity minimums for you to be able to take a, a meaningful position. There, there, there's no particular uh, uh, sort of threshold, but uh, because again, the difficulty of this industry uh, for our clients, they're they're not as uh, roll in the dice type behavior. So we're, we're more focused on the bigger companies. Now there'll be some juniors that we'll look at, but uh, when it gets into the the very early stage uh, part of the, the 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 life cycle, I guess you can say, before even development gets uh, uh, started, it, it's we shy away from those. It, it's if, if if I'm going to buy them, it'll be for my personal account, uh, and 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 nothing more. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I, you know, I think that a lot of times you talk about the value destruction. That's a very 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 cogent point. I think a lot of times you see retail greed starts to overrule them, and they and they that asymmetrical to the downside of the risk reward ratio, right? That they, they chase these returns too much. And again, part of what I'm, I hope to be developing as my own thesis for my followers is that you, you can have uh, powerful upside, you know, exceeding index potential without having to chase those very dangerous kind of the, the fringes of it in terms of pre-discovery plays. Right. But maybe I'll just transition here. Um, you know, why don't you just discuss your approach to commodities, right? You you make a very fair point that it's 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 very market dependent, very dependent on where we are in a, in a macro sense. Could you maybe just discuss? You you are long commodities. You say it with the qualifications, of course. I think that you kind of have to. But which ones are you long in particular, and maybe why? You want to discuss your your bull case for a few? We we have in and um, we have a decent sized position in precious metals. Uh, but a lot of that is more the physical uh, gold and silver, particularly. Well, we don't own any direct palladium or platinum, and 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 miners, both through a diversified fashion within ETFs, but some individual names. Uh, the other area we like is uranium, and we play that through Cameco and and uh, a broad basket of uranium stocks, uh, in addition to some of the, the the physical holdings, and then also energy is our other decent sized position when it comes to commodities. And we play it within commodity stocks, both uh, oil and natural gas, uh, but also some of the natural gas pipeline companies that uh, to me are, are pretty attractive as well. Now, with respect to like agriculture, for example, and we've been in and out. Uh, I, I had been long fertilizer stocks for years mm -hmm. and, and luckily sold them right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine last uh, February, March, when they spiked up. You know, the interesting thing about uh, ag, 
particularly the row crops like corn, soybeans, wheat, the the demand for those uh, is is pretty linear. You know, as, as the world uh, gains population, as the the world the rising middle class uh, that we that we see in many countries, there is a pretty consistent rise in the demand. So when it comes to investing in ag, you got to focus a lot just on the supply side. And what differentiates ag from other areas is, well, at least in in North America, there's essentially one planting season and one harvest. Uh, so a, a, a poor yield one year can be immediately rectified the following year. Uh, in South America, you have uh, you have some you have more because of, of the weather, of course. But um, so that, that is a bit more difficult is trying to figure out the supply side, whereas energy and industrial metals, uh, precious metals, you know, the, the supply side is a much longer um, time frame in terms of, of developing a project so that there's there's more visibility on that. On the other hand, you know, it gets trickier in trying to figure out the demand side for industrial metals, a little less so uh, with respect to oil, because there's there are inelasticities when it comes to the demand for energy, as long as people mm-hmm. want to drive or turn the lights on or or um, need to make something with a petrochemical plant, for example. Um, so you have to weigh all these things, but you have to understand that a lot of these investments are more rent uh, investments rather than, than long-term closed-rise investments. Uh, buying an oil stock or buying a miner is not like buying Procter & Gamble where you can just close your eyes and, and hold it for a long time. Uh, but as long as you understand that, then I think that um, you, you can you can better maneuver through it. And you want to uh, sell commodities when uh, it makes it on the front page of the newspapers and everyone loves it. And uh, when everyone hates it, uh, those, that's the time to, uh, to, to look at it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a point well made, right? An understanding eyes wide open, the, the cyclicality of this and yeah, is not a, I mean, it's a somewhat flippantly, I'll say that commodities are kind of like a long-term call on humanity, kind of as you referenced yourself, right? But at the same time, yeah, no, these are not, you, you can't hold them for decades and expect to have meaningful returns. It's just, it's not that kind of sector. And again, discussing potential reasons why sometimes, you know, retail investors lose their shirts is they do just kind of close their eyes and, and pretend like they can just call this like a, even even if the company doesn't go bankrupt, even if they, have, if they have a great project, you know, it's so easy for them to be just diluted into oblivion, right? So, so why don't I just, add, you know, I, I want to ask you then, I think you're already kind of touching on this, which I, which I appreciate, but, you know, can you discuss maybe your some of your selection criteria or the data that you rely on when you make these decisions about when you go long and when you go short or when you, when you decide to leave the sector? Well, it, it's 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 in, in making that decision. It, it's part of my just entire sort of macro framework and uh, trying to you know have a, a finger on the pulse of with the state of of the global economy. And I say global because these commodities are are globally driven. You can't just look at one country's economy and say that that's going to determine where the price of oil goes. For example, now, of course, you could have said that with China, with them being a, a very large. A dominant demand driver when it comes to certain commodities, but generally speaking, you just want to have a sense of where we are in the in the economic cycle. Uh, again, each of these sort of commodity groups have their own dynamics, and uh, it's just important to know from the the basic supply and demand um, picture, but also how the global economy sort of works its way through that. Again, because the state of the economy will will a lot of it affect the demand side, but also understanding how 
things affect the demand side. I'm sorry, the supply side, but you you know, you take energy, for example, well, you also now have to tie in the higher cost of capital and how that is affecting investment decisions, both on just drilling or just holding um, physical, for example, uh, barrels of oil and having to finance it now at a higher cost and how that sort of uh, works its way through. Um, so it, it's it's a variety of factors that uh, you really have to focus on. Um, but there's it's not easy. It's it, it's you know one of the things of 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 again commodity investing is you have to have a lot of patience because uh, there could be times when you're eventually right, but it can take a lot longer for your thesis to play out. I mean, let's take precious metals for example. Now precious like take gold. I mean gold rallied. I think it was um, twelve years in a row, and. Uh, and but interestingly enough, the rally sort of ended just as the world entered negative interest rates. Now you'd think that negative interest rates would would prolong uh, the bull market in gold. Uh, you'd think it would be the ultimate backdrop for gold. But you know, negative interest rates really started in 2011, just when gold actually topped out uh, after its its run from from 1999 2000. So. It, it, it's not not everything always makes sense uh, when you think about it. Now, gold's back to where it was at the peak of 2011, but you, you could have argued that when there was $18 trillion of negative yielding um, bonds, that uh, that would have been the ultimate backdrop, but it, it, it wasn't. Gold traded contra to what you would think. So it, it's not easy being in this business. <laughs> Well, I might ask you why, and of course, this is a, 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 you know, how many angels dance to the head of a pin sort of question. But, you know, I think that this is a, it's a good question. That I might just jump ahead here that, uh, you know, a lot of people look back to the 70s when gold had a huge spike up, you know, state inflation, inflation or interest rates. I mean, now we have quantitative easing, as you say, as you kind of reference. And people were, you know, you would expect, as you yourself referenced there, that, that this would be a very strong time for gold where there would be another re-rating like we saw in the 70s, early 2000s. And, you know, gold has been consistently flirting with its all-time highs, bouncing off and coming back a bit, but maybe not necessarily that that re-rating that people were, you know, if you were a, a pundit or a talking head that, you know, you would have pointed to and said, these are the conditions. Obviously, I know this is a, a difficult question or difficult, challenging answer, but is it just a matter of just... Like you say, just timing not quite being right yet. This give it time, or, or or are there conditions or factors maybe that you know that maybe the generalist investor is missing this to explain why gold hasn't responded as a safe haven as maybe you would expect? Well, there there's certainly a, a few um, big factors, at least over the last couple of years, that that um, you know, on, on one hand, sort of has stunted the potential upside, but on the other hand, you can argue, wow. You know, gold trades really well in this kind of environment. I mean, we've had, on one hand, the the the, the highest rate of inflation in 40 years, and you'd say, okay, well, that's a you know debate debasement, a form of debasement of one's currency. Gold should do well in that environment. But then, on the other hand, you've had the most aggressive monetary tightening in 40 years in response to that. That in turn has been a headwind. Now, gold was actually unchanged in 2022. Uh, in the face of a rather sharp rise in interest rates, you can say, wow, you know, it traded like a champ, uh, you know, and certainly in, in, in dollar terms. I think now the question with gold is, is where is its place in the world? And with 
still very high, at least in the US debts and deficits, you can argue that it has an important place. Uh, when, you, when you look at the confiscation of Russian central bank and government assets, you can argue as a reserve placeholder, gold has its place. And considering how in a way chaotic the world looks, both from a geopolitical standpoint, even and also a monetary and fiscal standpoint, uh, gold certainly has its place. And that's why I believe with everything that has sort of been thrown at it the last couple of years, it's only in dollar terms, you know, $100-ish, $150-ish from an all-time record high. And I always make the joke that since it's been around for 5,000 years, it's trading near a 5,000-year high. <laughs> no, it's a point well made. And I guess I can't help but be somewhat covered by the kind of the, the limp response that you see from not just the commodity, but the, the actual producer, developer, explorer sector where you have this, yeah, gold trading at all-time high, but you have these these companies, strong companies, good companies, not, you know, a company of charlatan or used car sales and sort of thing, but that are trading, you know, multi-year lows are approaching those, right? And and there's a disconnect here that I think a lot of people are frustrated by, and I think it goes back to, you know, it, what you said is that, you, you know, well, I mean, the market can remain irrational far longer than I can remain solvent as part of the concern here, right? Um, maybe I'll ask you, though, so I may transition back here. You discuss, you know, being long on individual commodities, and unsurprisingly, you discuss how, you know, Microcrop Explorer is not exactly your cup of tea in terms of through, through the eyes of Bleakly, but maybe can you discuss, I mean, you know, royalties, producers, developers, I mean, can you maybe break down the importance or value that you place on each of them? Um, and then I'll, I'll pause there and then I'll, I'll, let that, I'll let that sit for now. Well, royalty company is certainly a much better business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the thing about the mining business is uh, you, you're unless you're in a good jurisdiction like the U.S. or Canada or Australia, for example, uh, you know, you got to deal with the, the politics of, of, of your business and the government who can wake up one morning and say, you know, we're going to take more of our share. Uh, mm -hmm. and then you actually have to um, get the stuff out of the ground, which is, is never easy uh, properly budgeting for that. And then you're selling it at a price that you have no control over. So the mining business is, like I said earlier, just pretty crappy business. Uh, that said, there are uh, better businesses within that with royalties certainly being that case, uh, but they're always you know, valued as such with, uh, more, uh, with higher multiples than, than other things. Uh, but just you, you go in, you know, using the term again, eyes wide open with this to the mining business, knowing that it's a tough business, but trying to sort of catch a cycle. Uh, right now, I think we have the potential of catching a cycle because, uh, at least on the on the uh, mining side, uh, the companies that are instead of prospecting are actually digging this stuff out and selling it into the marketplace. Margins are pretty good right now. You can sell gold for nineteen hundred dollars plus an ounce and you're all in sustainable costs or, or low one thousands, you know, that's a, mm. a pretty hefty uh, margin for error. And so I think it's pretty good time to be in, in this business uh, right now. And hopefully it will uh, stay that way. I mean, I do think a lot of companies in existence today have certainly learned some big lessons from the, the, the destruction of capital that we've seen over the past uh, 10, 20 years, and they're they're less inclined to repeat those mistakes. And the same is said in, in energy, where uh, there was a lot of um, destruction of capital in the U.S. shale industry, for example. 
where investors were were rewarded for drilling, 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 regardless of how much cash was being mm -hmm. burned in order to do so. And now it's just the exact opposite is uh, we want to see cash flows first uh, rather than drilling for drilling's sake. And uh, so I think that that's an important uh, benefit to shareholders that um, many companies have, have taken heed to that um, tells me that there's still upside left in, in this, this commodity bull market from owning the miners in particular and still supply demand and balances that could help uh, the, the, the actual prices of these commodities to go higher from here. I like that you make that point. Just I was having a conversation with a CEO of a, of a, of a developer, and he, you know, he was making the point quite convincingly that not all development is equal, right? That you have developers who, like you say, drilling for drilling's sake, get that headline-grabbing assay, raising funds for the sake of just what continuing to drill, and then all. But on the flip side of that, you have the development where it is that that painstaking, arduous, you know, call it boring from the perspective of an impatient investor, but actual in the business of building an actual mine, not just headline assay numbers, right? I think that's that's a point well made. I think that's another potential area for retail investors to maybe get to to be self-reflective of is that what they want is not always necessarily in the best interest of what it takes to make a mine right um maybe yeah. we'll, uh, I'll, I'll ask i'm going to ask you as a representative of bleakly about this and then maybe we'll switch gears after that and maybe ask you you know just as a, as a private investor discussing if that makes sense right but because i think obviously your your strategies and goals you know, uh, managing $9 billion is going to be different than, you know, mom and pop, John Q. Public sort of thing, right? So maybe I'll ask, I mean, returning to this concept of you, you said you liked royalties, could you just name drop, I mean, Franco Nevada or Wheaton, I mean, could you, or could you name drop a couple of companies that you are looking at closely or long on or you think are good picks right now from Bluekley's perspective? Yeah, I mean, the, the ones you mentioned, you know, were long through um, some of the ETFs that we own. So we don't... Mm -hmm. um, so we're long them, but again, it's part of an ETF. There are some individual names like Agnico we own and and um, you know, sort of the one, um, call it, it's not pulling uh, copper and gold out of the ground yet, but uh, Seabridge is, mm -hmm. is one of the ones we really like as, an, as a, one of the largest undeveloped projects in the world that um, uh, seems to be not, not it's not going to develop the mine um, in terms of of getting it out of the ground, but they're developing a lot of the infrastructure on their own, and then uh, hopefully soon be bringing in partners to further exploit it. But um, to me, that is um, I never want to say less risky. Uh, you never want to say that, but it seems like they're well along the path mm -hmm. prior to actually developing, and that there's 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 uh, quite a fine that they have, in and in, in actually multiple multiple uh, places. Well, I think you make a good point there that it's they're known bad pun. They're known commodities, right? This is why I prefer developers to explorers in many ways. Is that explorers, there's not really a whole lot of heck of a lot of data to to drive your analysis, and it becomes you know you're veering into gambling quite often, right? Versus developers, where you know if you get a PEA or PFS, right, and, and you have you have a data driven analysis you can you can sit and and kind of plant your flag on in terms of understanding what this is and actually make you know apples to apples comparisons with other developers and so it's yeah like you say not necessarily that there's reduced risk but maybe so much that the the risks are known versus these earlier riskier projects where you you don't even know good or bad what's what's about to happen you know in terms of the the, the drill turning or what have you right right 
So yeah, why don't we switch over here? So kind of a, a fresh little mini category, I suppose. Again, a, a thing that I've mentioned a couple of times is I want, I, my part of my goal is that I would like to see a more informed, intelligent retail investing community, right? I mean, I don't, no one likes to see anybody lose money. We all, everybody wants, you know, you, I hope, you know, it, you, everybody wants to get rich and everybody don't, I don't benefit from other people going broke from making bad decisions. I think the, that the industry talking about mineral commodity sector in general benefits from reasoned informed investors. Right. And so, you know, I guess maybe the question I'll, I'll ask you, what is something consider if you could offer advice in, a, in an informal sense, right. Uh, what would you say to retail investors in terms of like, what, what do you think the retail investor typically struggles with that you think restricts their ability to succeed? It's a great question. Uh, I, I think some, I think at times it should, can be the, the, the temperament uh, that is needed for successful investing over a long period of time. Uh, understanding that when you buy a stock, you're 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 actually investing. You're you're owning a piece of that business, and yeah, people can have moments where um, they're a great trader and they're just basically trading stock symbols. But it, it's understanding that you're owning a piece of that business, and not all businesses do always do great. And there's never just this this linear um, path to success. There are bumps in the road. Now, some companies uh, have have greater sort of track records in terms of that success, but not all do. But even those that have bumpier roads, that doesn't mean that they're not going to get to, to an eventual level of success. So it's trying to just understand the, the fundamentals of, of, of a business, uh, because again, that's what you're buying when you're, you're buying a stock, you're investing in a business, and not sort of getting caught up in the daily fluctuations and the daily noise. You know, if you're not going to buy and sell your house if there was sort of a stock ticker in your bedroom and mm -hmm. the value of your home would go up or down. Uh, you don't pay attention to it. Now, technically speaking, the value of your house is changing every day, just as the value of, of a stock is changing every day, uh, particularly in, in, in real estate, for example. So it, it's, it, and, and it's also um, not buying something just because it's up not selling something just because it's down, because that's just crowd following. Um, so I think that that investors need to, it's important to do your own work, understanding uh, the investments that you're making, because I think that helps in, in sort of blocking out a lot of the noise and, and again, getting caught up in, in, in market psychology where, you know, emotions run uh, many times in one direction and they, they run a lot of times in the other direction. And the one thing in the stock market is human nature never changes. Um, people get more excited about things the higher they go. Uh, sentiment follows price. And over time, and sometimes it's it's important to buck that trend if you're going to be successful over a long period of time. Hmm. I think that's a very well-made point, right? You, the, the need to be dispassionate, right? And, and emotions cost you money. Uh, you know, if I wanted to feel emotions, I'll take my wife for a long walk on the beach, right? Not to not take it to the to the to the markets with me for that day, right? Maybe more specifically, if you don't mind, um, looking what would you look for in companies, right? So commodities or co commodity co companies themselves. What are some benchmarks or metrics that you would maybe suggest investors take a look at to to help make their decisions? 
Uh, yeah, I, I like to own uh, companies where management has financial stake of substance, uh, where they actually own stock. Uh, they put their money where their mouth is, uh, that they have a long track record of success, uh, of, of, of transparency, of honesty in, in running their business. Uh, now, it's not like I'm having conversations with them all the time to necessarily gauge this. A lot of times it's the performance that reflects that. But uh, I think I think ownership of stock uh, is, is, is important for me to see uh, because if the CEO is not going to own much stock, much stock hmm. in the company that he or she is running, well, you know, why should I be buying that stock? Hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of ways for insiders to make money that are not privy to, to retail investors. And I think that's the yeah, well, point well made. So on the flip side of that, then. Uh, what is something that you would maybe suggest to avoid or be distrustful or wary of as a potential red flag when you when people when individuals are researching these companies? Well, from a from a big picture standpoint, a lot of it is is where are you doing business? Uh, what jurisdictions are you doing business? You know, I, I consider myself a relatively conservative person that I, I don't feel the need I need to roll the dice, and hmm. uh, I don't need I I do just would I sleep better at night knowing that. Uh, companies that we're involved in uh, are, are, are mining in, in uh, more uh, secure uh, in terms of the rule of law jurisdictions. And I don't want to wake up one day and a company we own has their mine um, confiscated. It, it, it's just let, 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 let somebody else take that risk. I'm just not in the mood for that. Hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So kind of rapid fire questions here. Um, but we discussed we are in a in a what is a a bear market for commodity companies, right? Uh, and I mean everyone everyone dreams for the day of you know a few years back when the bulls returned and, and generalists returned to the sector. Is there something that you might discuss? I mean, what is there a trigger that you might be waiting for that you think would would see people return that that big wave that we everybody waits for? As we as you talked about, it's this boom bust cyclicality of, of commodity and commodity companies. Um, what is that trigger that might ex what that next that next wave up? I guess right. What what would you expect might be a potential trigger for that to see generals to turn? A, a very easy answer. It's higher prices. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's it. When 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 gold goes breaks above two thousand, goes to twenty five hundred, uh, you can be sure a lot a lot more people are going to like it at twenty five hundred than at nineteen hundred. I mean, that's just the, again, the, the nature of human nature is, is sentiment follows price and that's with everything. Yeah. Those emotions, right. And once the emotions take control, so I guess I can't help, but begs the question. Uh, so, you know, what are your potential triggers for, we'll talk gold particularly, right. I mean, where, where do you, what do you see triggering gold to finally take that next leg up and, and reestablish new higher highs? Um, I, I think it starts with uh, the fed ending their interest rate increases. Uh, they're they're pretty set on raising it in July, uh, you, you know the end of uh, end of the month, uh, and but that could be it. And and I think that's why gold still pretty much hangs in there because I think the market is, you know, sniffing out that it could be it. Now could they raise again after that? Yes, but in the context of already hiking north of 500 basis points, uh, it, it, it's we're coming down to the end. And if the economy weakens thereafter, not that they're going to be slashing and burning interest rates, but um, I, I do think when they start cutting rates, maybe at the end of the year into early next year, that's going to be a positive boost. And looking towards the U.S. dollar, you know, the U.S. dollar really can't get out of its own way. 
and, and I think a lot of that coincides with the Fed ending their hikes, but also, you know, there's, a, there, there's the, the rising US, U.S. debts and deficits is, is now getting a lot more attention, and um, both relative to GDP uh, from a total debt level, but also the budget deficit of, as a percent of GDP, which is north of 7% even before a recession started, uh, is, is a pretty alarming number where, you know, for decades, deficits didn't matter, but, you know, maybe now they do, and that could be potentially a headwind for the dollar, which would benefit precious metals. That's what I find interesting too, right? You talk about a ballooning debt in the last 10, 20 years, and, and, and it's so funny because, again, you have this expectation that it will have this, this response to gold or to precious metals, and I, and I think you just said it, right? it, it's, it doesn't matter until it does, right? And, and, and it's, it could be a long time before that rubber band snaps back, but eventually I think, as, as you referenced, that there will come a time where it will matter. And, and, and I think a lot of people in this sector, their investment thesis is built around things like that, and people have lost their shirts being too stubborn and obstinate and not getting out of their own way. Uh, but eventually, I think that you know the, the, the piper has to get paid, right, eventually. Um, I, I'm circling to the end here, just maybe one one more question here, and this is one that uh, we haven't really touched on as much as I thought maybe we might, but I mean, as someone who I operate, you know, predominantly in the commodity sector, and, and a lot of people in this sector, CEOs and analysts, right, keep trying to hammer home the point to generalists and to the to, to the public at large that there is, and we kind of referenced this previously, that the like chronic and structural uh, supply and exploration shortages that are just starting. And, you know, in terms of the runway it takes to to create new projects, just not enough turnaround to, to steer this boat away from the iceberg, so to speak, right? Uh, but, and yet we still see not a lot of interest in the sector, right? And so I guess you can probably guess where I'm going with this. But I mean, you know, the market is typically forward-looking, right? Bedevilingly so sometimes. But here we are with, with the sector where, you know, the valuations are still rock bottom and these companies are still struggling to get off the mat. Do you want to discuss, I mean, wh why is that such a case, right? You have a forward-looking market. You have looming, chronic, and, e and difficult-to-solve uh, supply and expiration deficits that are not going to be solved quickly, and yet we still have very depressed valuations and pricings. Is that something you want to touch on? Well, markets are forward-looking sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes they're not. Uh, what was the market looking at in January 2022 when it was at four, the S&P 500 was at 4,800? Um, what was the the market looking at in October 2007 when the S&P 500 was at a record high? So. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Uh, I find that over the last bunch of years, it's become much, much less of a discounting mechanism and the market really just focuses on what's right in front of its face. Yeah. And if you're a company, did you meet or beat uh, earnings expectations? And if, you're if you missed, you're in the doghouse. You know, the thing about the mining, owning mining companies, it's been just perpetual disappointment. So there's no chance that uh, owning a mining stock where uh, the miners are going to somehow uh, discount what they see in the future. No, it's only going to respond to 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 where the prices go uh, in terms of the metal. It's not going to sort of uh, price out any or discount anything uh, again because it's been so many years of people getting burned that um, that it's only going to be what's in front of your face that at least today the market's going to price in. Fair. And that's, it kind of draws back to, it's this paradox where you, you reference 
being contrarian, having courage of your convictions to to turn left when everyone is turning right in, in terms of those emotional trade-offs, right? But then there's a paradox that's, you know, it, being early can sometimes be the same thing as being wrong, right? That it, it takes so long, and if you talk about value destruction, that it, 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 even though you're right, maybe you end up losing all you're losing your shirt regardless right and i think this yeah it ties back to what maybe your theme so far has been is this this idea that you you have to be nimble you can't get married to a stock and you have to be prepared to to be active in your investment if this is a a sector that you want to to make a home in i suppose Mm -hmm. correct uh but peter you know i think that kind of does it for me is there anything that you have on your mind that maybe we didn't touch on that you'd like to articulate a bit uh, no, I think we, we covered a lot here. It's, uh, no, times. Well, no, thank you, Peter. Yeah, so I think we're just nicely at the hour here, so I'll let you go. So in case you have a meetings, and I appreciate your time, and, and thanks for coming on my show. All right, thanks, Matt. I appreciate having me on. Perfect. Have a good day. You too.